Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. And we're going to cover the first of five stages of the, the Gentile mission, because that's what's beginning now. And just a way of reminder, uh, as we've been in the book of Acts, uh, if you're new to what we do here, what we do is we do verse-by-verse teaching. And the reason why we do that, and the reason why we believe in verse-by-verse, what we call expository teaching, exposing the text, is because we believe the Bible teaches one story about God. And because it teaches one story about God, you really can't proof text the story. And what I mean by that is, if you read a novel by... J.R. Tolkien, or you were to read a novel by C.S. Lewis, or any author, you wouldn't want to take the middle portion and not read the beginning and the end and explain it just by the middle portion. You would want to read the whole story and then explain what it's about. And that's what the Bible is. It's one story about God and redemption. And just like the book of Acts, it fits in the grand story of Scripture, of what the Bible is. And in Acts, what we see is the main actor is the Holy Spirit. But what we've seen so far is the early church grow, multiply, and develop leaders and experience persecution. And just recently in chapter 7, we experienced Stephen experiencing some of the most brutal persecution, being stoned to death before his own brethren. And Stephen, though, however, was not one of the original apostles. He, like Philip... Or one of the chosen seven to serve and be a part of leading the administration of the daily distribution. But what we know here is that Stephen wasn't just a deacon, per se. He was more than a deacon. He was somebody who definitely had the oratory ability, who had the leadership to lead people in explaining the full counsel of God through the Old Testament scriptures to his Jewish brethren. However, as we both know, as we all know in here, that the Christian faith is not well received even 2,000 years later. It's still very much rejected because of one thing. Not because we believe in God, but because we believe in Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God. And that's important for us because we need to continually recognize that when people reject the Christian faith, want to have nothing to do with it, it's because what we're saying is we don't have all the answers, we're wrong, because who likes to be told that they're wrong and who likes to admit that they're wrong? And they don't have it together. None of us do. And that's why we're called sinners. Uh, we're not just wrong. We're corrupt in the heart. Uh, our hearts need a transformation by the Holy Spirit. And the good news of Jesus Christ applied to us. Which the good news is Jesus Christ crucified, buried, and risen in our place for our sins. And that's the hope we have. So as Acts chapter 7, remember how it ended. Stephen was brought out by his executioners, those who would stone him to death. And the man whose garments were laid in front of was the man named Saul. And remember, Saul was the person who debated Stephen at the very beginning. In Acts chapter 7, remember we saw how Stephen, or Acts chapter 6 at the very end, we saw how Stephen was debating in private. And they was being told, you don't know what you're talking about. These things aren't true. And then they brought in false witnesses because they couldn't outwit Stephen. Stephen was a very sharp guy. He was very uh, winsome. He was very intellectual. He knew what he was talking about. And he was very, 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 very profound in how he delivered the full counsel of God. Now, if you remember, Stephen was stoned. And all the garments were thrown at the feet of Saul, who approved of his execution. Now, let's look at 
chapter 8, as we begin here today, verses 1 through 8. And Saul, in chapter 8, beginning there, and Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Now let's stop right there. Let's look at a couple things. One is, what we're seeing is the bridge... Bridging of the gospel from the Jews to the Gentiles through the preaching and teaching of Stephen. Stephen was a Hellenistic Jew. He wasn't a pure-speaking Aramaic Jew. He was a Greek-speaking Jew. He was Hellenistic. So also we see how Stephen bridged the gospel from the Jews to the Gentiles by then looking at verse 2. Devout men buried Stephen and made great made great lamentation of him. So there was a great amount of followers who followed even a Hellenistic Jew. When he was in pure speaking Aramaic. And then in verse 3 of chapter 8 we see, But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So we're seeing here the spread of the gospel leaving Jerusalem, the center church, and spreading to Judea and Samaria. What we also recognize is in Acts 1 verse 8. You don't have to turn there, but just remember Acts 1 8. It says... But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. So starting there, in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So what we saw already is the apostles were commissioned by Jesus, his own words saying, You will be my witnesses to Jerusalem. You'll go back there, where many still hate my name, still think of me, still get... Boiled over in anger over my name and what I've done and what I taught. And the church will start there, but then will spread to Judea and Samaria. So the coined phrase of church history, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, rings true here in Acts 8.1. Because what do we see here? And there arose in the day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they're all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. So we see Acts 1.8... Being fulfilled in Acts 8.1. So that's easy to remember. Acts 1.8 and 8.1. We see the fulfillment of the scriptures. It also complements what God does. In the Old Testament, God makes promises. And in the New Testament, God keeps his promises. So that's a good way of looking at the whole Bible. In the Old Testament, don't look at it as that's God's judgment and then God's love in the New Testament. God's love is all expressed through the Old Testament. And God's judgment is all expressed in the New Testament. We continue to see Jesus is calling the Pharisees a brood of vipers. I mean, if somebody came up to you and said, you're just such a snake. I mean, you would be truly offended, I think. But to be called as a religious, devout Jew a snake, I think Jesus was calling his condemnation and judging their actions based on how self-righteous they thought they were. But in reality, knowing that they weren't righteous, they needed a Savior just as much as the drunken man you just said. I have a question. Yes. Uh, on, the, on the first verse. Yes. Why did they say that except the apostles weren't yep. scattered? Why? We're going to get to that. Oh. Very much. And so it actually moves into that part right there. Uh, verse 1 was about persecution leading to dispersion. So persecution that led to the dispersion. Now in verse Two, actually, verse one. Still, we see that except the apostles. 
Now, there's a couple theories behind that verse right there, that phrasing, except the apostles. Were the apostles scared and they didn't want to go and, and leave the, the comfort of Jerusalem? I would have to say to stay in Jerusalem actually would not be a comfortable thing. You would probably more than likely be thrown into prison. You would probably more than likely be beaten or flogged because you would be caught easier. You wouldn't be leaving and fleeing Jerusalem for Judea or Samaria. They're actually staying there. Uh, there's another theory in saying that the apostles stayed in Jerusalem because it would actually be better for them to stay centralized to have the Lord's central command or a base to leave from and to return, perhaps, or to just set up some sort of central location for the mission of the church for later years. I, I really do believe that when it says except the apostles, it wasn't so to give us the idea that the apostles didn't want persecution to happen. I mean, who wants persecution to happen? I think the apostles really saw themselves as a, as a leadership force, not to be necessarily reckoned with, but a leadership force band together in order to declare the gospel more. We also read later how uh, church history confirms how Peter was uh, hung upside down on a cross. Um, he felt that he wasn't worthy to hang on the same manner as Jesus, so he's hung upside down. We know that James was killed by the sword. So we, we do know that these apostles never escaped persecution. I think perhaps it had to do with strategy more than anything else. And perhaps also we recognize that the apostles weren't necessarily a band of what we call diocese, but they were definitely recognized, set apart for the work and teaching of the scriptures. So perhaps they were banded together, uh, not necessarily out of fear, but more for out of strategy and for the Lord's work. Uh, in verse 2, we see how Stephen is buried. It says, devout men buried Stephen, made grand lamentation over him. He was buried because he had a large amount of Hellenistic Jew followers and also other Jewish followers. But we see here, even in these three verses, how Stephen bridges the Jewish mission to the Jerusalem church to the Gentile mission. In verse 3, Saul's heart is hardened to the gospel. Remember, Chen Kilgore, he says that... Um, I think I said before that the gospel either hardens or softens the heart. And so here we're seeing the gospel harden Saul's heart even more. I mean, the whole of chapter 7 was spoken in front of Saul. So he's heard the gospel again. Uh, this is a man whose heart is hard just like all of ours are uh, when we resist the Holy Spirit. And so entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So this is a man who has an agenda. He had one. It was nonetheless just to squash the Christian faith so no one would hear about Jesus Christ. Uh, look at the context now in verse 3. It says, entering house after house. The context changed. They're no longer meeting in the synagogue. The context changed. So as a church, we have to be ready to adapt to scenarios where uh, we're no longer able to meet collectively together as a thousand. Perhaps now we need to meet now in 25s. And all over the city. And I think that's something that we need to keep in mind when it comes to church planting, when it comes to strategy, is that we need to have ministries that are organic enough that can continue the life of the body and multiply themselves so that gospel advance can happen. We don't need to be stuck into a programmatic set where we all have, all two, three thousand of us have to be together for everything. I understand the validity and the, the good nature behind that. And there is a lot of value to being together and having that, uh, those central ministries. But there's a lot of value to having decentralized ministries where 
people can thrive and use their giftings on not so much of a formal scale, but an informal scale, and where people can be um, uh, empowered to, and challenged to do those things where they're at in their communities. But I think here what we're seeing is the context changing in Acts 8. We see how Stephen bridged the gospel from the Jews to the Gentiles, but we see how the mission here has changed. It's no longer meeting in synagogues. It's meeting in houses. As what we see also in the Middle East, what we see in China, what we see in all close societies to the gospel. We see people meeting in forests. We see people meeting all over in all sorts of shops and just closed areas. Why? Because we want to see the gospel advance. Now, we see these things happen because the gospel is being bridged from the Jews to the Gentiles. Now, we get to verse 4 and we see another guy. His name's Philip. Philip, also one of the original seven. Remember in Acts chapter 6, when they chose the, the, the first seven men, uh, the whole gathering, they, they put aside Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and then five other guys. So Philip, right now, he's leaving Jerusalem, and he's taking the gospel where? It says in verse 4, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word, and Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And in verse 6, it says, And the crowd with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. And when they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits came out of many who were possessed, crying with a loud voice. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in the city. Now this is one of the first accounts that we have in Samaria with Philip. And the later verses, we'll go into that in the coming weeks, about what that, that account looked like and how the Gentile mission spread in Samaria. But let's just begin in verse 4, and let's look at what this says. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. These are individuals who were forced to leave Jerusalem because the persecution was so intense, they had to leave their work, leave their life, leave their community, leave their family sometimes, leave their friends, definitely. But they had to make a new life somewhere else. But as they went... Uh, it's the same usage that we have in, in Matthew chapter 28, 19 and 20, where it says, Go therefore and make... The, the, the usage in the Greek is, as you are going. So we see the same usage here in verse 4. As you are going, they went about. So as they went about doing. So as you go about doing in your work or your school or whatever context you're in, you're going about preaching the gospel, preaching Christ, preaching the risen Lord. It doesn't mean you, you only do it in a certain context situation or you have a book you have to go through with someone. You just go about doing it wherever you're at. You pray and ask God, as we sung the song, as we prayed about in our prayer time, you pray and ask God for an opportunity, wherever you're going, to share the gospel. If it's at a bus stop, it's a bus stop. If it's at the grocery store, it's a grocery store. If it's in your community, it's in your community. You go and you tell. As you are going, make disciples. We don't make converts. We make disciples. I think that's a misunderstanding as we sort of think we have to do this because we're trying to make converts. God makes the converts. Remember, something I was reading this in a parenting book, but it's more of a gospel-centered parenting book by Elise Fitzpatrick. She says that our job as parents is not to make converts. Only God does that. Our job is to make disciples. What we learn as parents growing uh, with our children growing up is that sometimes they come to know Jesus and sometimes they don't. But ultimately, 
Our job is to show our kids the gospel and Jesus, and God will convert their hearts. God will do that. It's the same way with our discipleship with each other, is that we share Christ, we preach Jesus, we help each other grow, and God causes the growth, as 1 Corinthians 3 talks about. Paul said what? It's neither Apollos nor I, but only God who causes the growth. So, in verse 5, we see Philip went down to the city of Samaria. Now, Samaria. Who are the Samaritans? I think that is somewhere we need to stop right now. Let's think about, in Jesus' time and journey on earth, he encountered the Samaritans on multiple occasions. But let's look at two occasions. I want you to turn to Luke chapter 9. And in Luke chapter 9, verse 51. Luke chapter 9, verse 51. We need to talk about the Samaritans, who they were, in order to understand why Philip went there, and why this is so significant in the book of Acts, and why Luke records this. And Luke, remember Luke is the author of Acts, just like he's the author of this gospel. In Luke 9, 51. Luke 9, 51, it says, When the days drew near for him, that's Jesus taking up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? It's one of those hilarious moments where Jesus is thinking, yeah, that's exactly what I want you to do. Considering you can't do that. But I, I, you know, you're thinking in your head, are you serious? But they asked, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? I think that this is just such an arrogant statement right there in front of Christ. And they know it, but they're still saying it. But Jesus says, he turns and rebukes them. And they went on to another village. Now, uh, my just humble opinion is that I believe Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen later. James and John, they, they call them the sons of thunder for a big reason. I think this is a good one right here. Do you want us to call fire down from heaven on that village because they wouldn't receive you? And Jesus probably think, no... Actually, don't, and you cannot talk like that anymore around me, if you please. You know, humanly speaking, because God was the God man, he was probably thinking sarcastically, yeah, sure, I want you. No, don't do that. But I believe that Jesus knew that he was going to send the apostles back to the same village with the gospel, somehow, some way. Now, let's look at John chapter 4. John chapter 4. Jesus, it says in John chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. This gives us a lot of context about the Samaritans. John chapter 4, verse 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples... Then John, although Jesus himself did not baptize only his disciples, 
he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. But he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Verse 7. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now Jesus answered, If you knew the gift of God, who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is very deep. Where did you, did you, you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. So Jesus said to her, Everyone who's thirsty, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I give will never be thirsty forever. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of living water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. But Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right. By saying, I have no husband. For you have five husbands, had five husbands, and the one you have is not your husband. So he knows her heart. He knows her condition. Jesus knows that the woman is a prostitute. And then the woman says, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me that the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So there we have Jesus revealing himself to a Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. Now, who are the Samaritans? In 722 BC, what we saw was these uh, Samaritan people, these had still maintained relations with their Jewish heritage, still understood that there was a coming Messiah. Remember John 4, the woman says, I perceive that you are a prophet. She's looking for the Messiah. So the Samaritans, what is she saying? Our followers worship on this mountain. Well, they built a temple because around 700-700 BC, when the Jews had returned to rebuild the temple, the Jews, the pure-blooded Jews, refused the help of the Samaritans and said, no way, no how. Well, what happened? The Samaritans said, we still believe that there's a Messiah coming, but we're going to build our own temple. So from about 700 years, there was this big schismatic that happened. This is the big division where you had the Jews down there in Jerusalem and up in Samaria, Mount Gerzim, you had their temple where they worshipped. But they still longed for the Messiah. Never heard, never understood who Jesus was. And Jesus is revealing himself here in John 4 
who he really is. Now, where's the connection here in, Luke, in, in Acts chapter 8 by Luke? Well, we see Philip going down to the city of Samaria, which is north of Judea, where heretical half-Jews live, that only believed in the Pentateuch. See, they only believed in the writings of Moses. They didn't believe in the rest of, it, of the Old Testament. But they were still looking for the Messiah. And Philip goes, which I believe is just the principal city of Samaria, which is probably Shechem. But he proclaims Jesus down there. And in verse 5, what we see is the gospel going to the Gentiles. So there's a couple things we need to see here. Is that the gospel brings understanding, it brings healing, and it brings joy. Because we're going to see these three things right here in the following verses. In verse 6, And the crowds with one accord, so there's multitudes... Just like there was multitudes when Peter declared the gospel when the Holy Spirit descended. The crowds of one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. So they've been looking for the Messiah. They've been looking for Jesus. They've been looking for understanding about the things they've been reading in the Pentateuch. And Philip opens their minds to the understanding by the power of the Holy Spirit. So we see the understanding being done right here by the Holy Spirit through the preaching of Jesus. In verse 7, we see, For unclean spirits came out of many who were possessed, crying with a loud voice, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. Philip brings an exorcism ministry, a healing ministry to Samaria. People who have been looking to something else other than the healing power of God through Christ were now experiencing a revelation. The gospel was accompanied by action. It was accompanied by good works. Philip was laying hands. He was praying. Multitudes were listening to the message. They were seeing the Old Testament, the, the Pentateuch, the first five books Moses wrote. Seeing all of it being fulfilled in Philip's message of Christ. And in verse 8, we see, so there's much joy in the city. And that's something that happens when people come to Christ. It's a fruit of new conversions. Galatians 5, 22 says. So the result was much joy. So the gospel, it, it brings the understanding, the healing, and the joy. And our first account in Samaria. We're seeing the Samaritans understand a totally different situation here from what they've been doing. They've experienced liberty and freedom in the gospel. And that's what the gospel mission has done. It's left Jerusalem. The freedom they experienced in Christ is now moving down into Samaria. And as we'll see later, we'll see how Simon the Magician, how he was doing things. And performing many wonders in front of the people. But even Simon later in the same chapter, he was amazed. And the difference between what Philip was doing, his signs and wonders, were about God and about his son Christ. Versus what Simon was trying to do. And we also see here later in the chapter, Peter and John going back to the same area of Samaritans. Now, just imagine, you're John and you've experienced the risen Christ. You've experienced persecution, the joys of the gospel, and you know what the mission's about. And you go back to that same village that you know you previously had wanted fire and to come down and consume the people. I mean, you're eating your words spiritually, but you're thanking God. And I think that's what Peter and John do, is they thank the Lord that the mission has advanced. And that's what we want to see in our own lives. We want to see the gospel bridge from Bakashiri to other places. And what that means is that means a lot of risk taking. It means a lot of suffering. And it means a lot of trusting God. 
So as we move forward in our Christian life individually and corporately, let's keep that in mind because the gospel is the most important thing that does bring understanding. Jesus does bring healing to our lives daily on a daily basis and brings us much joy because we see people come to know the fruit of the knowledge of the gospel. So Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for uh, the book of Acts, how illuminated it is for our lives on a daily basis, how it moves us from point A to B to C and onward till eventually, God, you complete us in Z and your return will never be come. And we just ask and pray that you would sanctify us by this truth, how the gospel changed the lives of Samaritans. Father, prevent us from self-righteousness and from thinking conversion is about us so that we don't make the same mistake that Peter or that John and, uh, and James had made. Just asking that you curse people instead of blessing them with salvation. Father, evangelism and apologetics and all those things that we use, Father, to declare the gospel, it, it's a hard thing. And preaching the gospel is not easy. But you don't call us to easy tasks. You call us to ones that are difficult because you want us to trust in you. So give us grace in that. And as we fight sin, as we learn to love you more this week, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let's remember this truth as we carry it out, but uh, as well. So next week we'll continue in the book of Acts and the week after that. So the next three weeks. Yeah. Yeah. Okay.